You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. I love to worship with you, and uh, one of the perks of being the pastor is that I get to do it twice on Sunday mornings, and so uh, sometimes people ask what it's like to preach the same message two times. They assume that the early service is like a practice or a warm-up. Uh, it really doesn't work that way, to be honest with you. Um, you kind of expend yourself, um, your energy, your emotion, all those things in that early service, and uh, sometimes you find yourself a bit depleted um, in the second service. It's interesting. This is a, just a weird side note, maybe, but um, I have a group of pastors that we text back and forth most Sunday mornings, and it's kind of like... Um, I don't know, it'd be like a basketball team, you know, in the locker room before going out, you know, getting hype or whatever you want to call it. And um, we all kind of agreed this morning, if you can't get hype on this Sunday, uh, if you can't preach on this Sunday, you should probably go clean swimming pools or something, right? Um, man, um, I don't know about you, but... I, it, you know, we, those are not new songs for us as a church family. They may be new to some of you, um, but they just take um, a special meaning on a day like today. And, and what you need to understand is we celebrate the resurrection every Lord's Day, okay? This is, <laughs> Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb so that we could have a holiday, okay? He walked out of the tomb so that we could be declared holy one day, right? Um, and so uh, while I recognize this is a special Sunday, and I, I love all the stuff about Easter as much as anyone, I... I love gathering with family. I love that we're going to have a great lunch. we got a couple roasts in the crock pot at home right now, and I'm looking forward to a great meal together, and I love new clothes and all that kind of stuff. I love a piece of chocolate as much as anybody else. Um, I've bitten the ears off bunnies just like all of, you know, some of you. That's all great, okay? Um, But we know that that's not ultimately what this day is all about, Um, and so we have so much Uh, to celebrate. Um, And so if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Psalm chapter 22, if you would. Psalm 22. Uh, Let me, while you're turning there, uh, say that next Sunday is, um, I think next Sunday is Family Sunday, is that right? Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe, is that correct? Yes, I'm being told yes. Okay, so if you've been here uh, on our recent Family Worship Sunday, so in other words, the last Sunday of the month, uh, we invite uh, the school-age kids to be in worship with us, uh, big church, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, if you've been here the last few times, you know that that particular Sunday is especially crowded in this hour, in the 11 o'clock service. Uh, I will tell you that today, there may have been more people in the early service than there are in here right now. Okay, So I'm saying all that to say, uh, if you do not have kids... Uh, you might prayerfully consider migrating to the early service next Sunday morning. That service happens at 8.30 normally. Today we had it at 9 o'clock, and here happens at 8.30 across the street, and that would uh, relieve uh, a few chairs uh, in this service at 11 o'clock next week. And so just something for you to consider. Uh, I know that um, some of you are creatures of habit, and to even suggest that you come to church at a different time than you normally do uh, is a difficult Uh, ask, but uh, you might consider that next week. Well, I've come to the pulpit on Resurrection Sunday for nearly 30 years now, and as I was praying and 
seeking the Lord as to what I should preach this morning. Um, I, I was thinking back over those 30-some years, and I, it struck me that I've used each of the four Gospels numerous times, um, I, along with a really a rather lengthy list of other passages in Scripture to draw the hearts and minds of God's people to the power of the resurrection. I've preached apologetic-type messages. Uh, I've preached uh, Paul's writing, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and looked at the fact that what would it be like if there was no Easter? What would that mean to us? He basically says, again, all this would be pointless. Your preaching would be in vain. Um, So I've I've looked at any of those texts that you would normally think of. To the best of my knowledge, I have never used a psalm. I've never used a psalm. And I want to be crystal clear this morning, as we open this psalm, uh, we, we sometimes uh, share this simple truth as it relates to biblical interpretation. Uh, we preachers call this uh, hermeneutics. I know you probably didn't come to church on Easter Sunday to get a hermeneutics lesson, uh, but that's just a fancy word that means how we interpret scripture. Every scripture has one basic primary interpretation. That, that is, who originally wrote it, to whom did they write it, and what was the purpose for them writing it? Okay, and so that's true of the text we're going to look at today. This psalm was written by King David, as were many of uh, the psalms. Okay, but we also make it clear that many scriptures have a prophetic interpretation. Okay, and so uh, we see a lot of verses of scripture that have a, a, a basic meaning to the time in which it was written, the culture into which it was written, the original audience to which it was written. But those same words have a prophetic implication, a prophetic interpretation. And we have to be very careful how we unpack scripture. We want to be faithful to the word of God. Okay, I don't want my sermon to bear upon scripture. I want scripture to bear upon my sermon. All right, we call that exegesis. Um, I, I don't want to uh, put God, words in God's mouth, so to speak. And so I, I want to be crystal clear about that. So while this psalm was uh, written by King David, the words of the psalm, I believe, far surpass and exceed the experience, any experience in David's life. In fact, you'll find that this is one of the psalms uh, that is referred to most, uh, among others, in the New Testament. Um, it's a psalm quoted by our Savior from the cross and gives us this remarkable prophetic glimpse of the sufferings of Jesus and the glories uh, that were to follow. And it's extraordinary to me that here we see in Psalm chapter 22, we see the cross in some detail from the vantage point, not of one of the apostles or someone in the crowd looking out from the, the foot of the cross. Here we see the cross, the empty tomb, as it were, from the vantage point of the one who hung there and stepped from the grave in resurrection victory. And if you look at Psalm 22 carefully, you will see, as we read it here in just a moment, that it has, uh, basically, it's broken down into two major divisions that bring together Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. You see, the depths of God-forsakenness here, in verses 1 to 21, you see the heights of resurrection victory in verses 21 through 31. And so for that reason, I've entitled this morning's message, A Psalm for Resurrection Sunday. This psalm brings us to the foot of the cross, and it shows us in vivid color the horror of our Savior's dying love for us, and then it takes us to the empty tomb, and we are freshly confronted with the wonder of Christ's resurrection glory. And so let's give it our full attention now. You can follow along on the screen, or if you have a copy of God's Word, I hope that you'll follow along as I read there. 
Picking it up in verse number one, and as I read, I want you to pay special attention to some of the language that we see here and see if it doesn't sound familiar to you, especially as we reflect upon the crucifixion and the resurrection this morning. It begins in verse number one with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. To you they trust. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and make, uh, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads." He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Notice those words are in quotes, actually. Yet you who are to, uh, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard... When he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall uh, bow down and bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So Psalm 22 here indeed connects Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. So for these few moments that we have together this morning, I want us to ask ourselves, what other connections to the life and work of Jesus are present in this 22nd Psalm? I want you to notice, first of all, the sufferings of the crucified Christ. If you've spent much time with the Bible in your hand, 
Uh, you've spent much time in church culture, then some of the language of Psalm chapter 22 was likely familiar to you. Uh, there are things here that should conjure up uh, images of the cross and of the crucifixion and even the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the, the structure, the pattern uh, of this part of the psalm, these first 21 verses really. There are three blocks of verses that dwell on the nature of Christ's suffering, each of them followed by a block of text that show us the unwavering, unassailable faith of Christ in the midst of his sufferings. And they, they seem to alternate back and forth. Each of these blocks of text, they, they deal with Christ's confidence and faith and begin with, with words like, yet you are holy, yet you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, where our Savior faces the crushing blows bearing down upon him. And then as it rolls back, right there, they cried out to the Lord. He rescued them. This is a picture even of our own salvation. Okay, we are, we are called out in faith, to, in, by faith in Jesus Christ, out of the slavery to sin. And notice how our Savior sustained that extraordinary faith amidst those trials. The first thing he does is he recites the faithfulness of God to the fathers. You see that? Yet, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and you delivered them. They trusted in you and we are not put to shame. And so he rehearses God's past grace upon his people in order to sustain his faith amidst uh, present trials. He looks for new grace. Sustains faith, much needed grace, by remembering the unfailing faithfulness of God in the past. And I would encourage us to do the same thing. You're going through a difficult season. Instead of just focusing on the difficulties that you find yourself immersed in, you should rehearse the faithfulness of God in the past. This is how you've proven yourself faithful time and again. And we, we see this kind of pattern throughout Scripture. They would set up these stones of remembrance. And it was to, to draw their attention back to, to God's faithfulness, the way that he had shown himself faithful uh, through the ages. Remember the grace of God. He's been faithful to you again and again and to your fathers and to his people throughout the generations. This is how he sustained faith. He remembered and preached to his own soul even the past unfailing unfaithfulness of God. But I want you to notice here, as we look at the prophetic implications of this, a Savior who is familiar with suffering. The psalm comes back again to focus on this suffering. The, the waves of suffering come crashing back down. Uh, and, and this time our attention is fixed on their dehumanizing effects. Look at the text. He says, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. What interesting language. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Any of that language sound remotely familiar to you as you've studied the Gospels? You hear that? A worm and not a man, despised by the people. He's treated by them like an animal, subhuman, beneath compassion, beneath mercy, worthy of ridicule. For everyone who has suffered the stripping away of their dignity, there is one who has experienced this ahead of you. There are no depths into which you and I may descend that Christ has not already been there. Look at the cross. 
He was alone, despised, mocked. The Pharisees standing around the cross, remember what they hurled at him as he died? He saved others. Let him save himself. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. He even describes himself as a worm, not a man. He knows. He knows. So even in this, he recalls this covenant faithfulness. As we move to verses 6 through 18, we find this connection to Jesus' crucifixion again. Many of these verses quoted or alluded to in the passion narratives of the four Gospels. In verse 7 here, David writes, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Jesus is mocked by many onlookers, including soldiers and chief priests and random members of the crowds. Such mocking. We see it in Matthew chapter 27. It says, All those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Now, you may need a fresh new vision of the crucifixion. Because so many times in our modern culture, the crucifixion is depicted as uh, the kind of this beautiful scene. There's a hillside typically, and you see the three crosses set up on the hillside, and they're kind of off in the distance away from anyone. That, that's really not how it happened. No, it would have been very common in that day for people to have been crucified. In fact, the, the gospel writers even tell us it was, it was on the way as people were coming and going from Jerusalem. It's one of the reasons that they, they, they emphasize so much the sign or the placard that would be placed on the cross many times. It would basically be, this is the crime for which this criminal has been charged. So the people could walk by and they could wag their heads, cluck their tongues. That's kind of the language that we're seeing here, even in this psalm. And you'll notice in verse number 8, David specifies the mocking with these words spoken even against him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. We see Matthew record this of the chief priests who were present at Jesus' crucifixion. It says, so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Notice verse 16. I believe even more explicit. It says, they have pierced my hands and feet. This seems like an obvious thing for the gospel writers to pick up on, seeing as a crucifixion often involved the, the piercing of hands and feet to affix the condemned to the cross. It doesn't seem to, to be mentioned as a point of emphasis by the gospel writers, except in Jesus' resurrection account in John chapter 20 where Thomas demands to place his fingers in the nail marks of Jesus' hands before he will believe, and Jesus complies. We see another hint of this in Colossians chapter 2, where it says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Then verse 18, another clear connection to Good Friday. David writes, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We talked about this in our Good Friday service a bit. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each reference this occurrence. John makes the connection most clearly when he writes, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless. 
woven into one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let's don't tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. In other words, they did the, 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 what we would do, rock, paper, scissors, essentially. This was to fulfill the scriptures which say, or which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So even here in this ancient text, this psalm, we have this depiction of the lingering death of the cross. Bolstered by the memory of God's faithfulness comes this next wave of suffering in verses 12 through 18. And I don't want you to miss the incredibly accurate account of the physical suffering of crucifixion here. The details regarding the soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for his garments. As we said, here's a reason to trust in Scripture. It's inspired. It's the inherent word of God. And almost a millennium before Christ came, what an accurate account we have of much of what took place at Calvary. Look at the language again. I'm surrounded by many bulls of Bashan. They're like roaring lions, gaping wide as if to consume our Savior. Verse, there are dogs snapping at him all around. Don't take offense at that, you dog lovers, okay? The dog in that day was not domesticated like the dogs of our day, okay? So I can't picture uh, my buddy Ollie uh, in, in this particular case for sure, okay? You're talking about wild, ravenous type animals. It goes on to say, they pierce his hands and his feet, nailed to a cross. They divide the garments, cast lots for his clothing. He's poured out like water, all his bones out of joint. His heart is melted like wax, Many commentators would tell us, even some medical experts that would say that Jesus fundamentally died of a broken heart on the cross. His strength is dried up, it says here. His bones out of joint, his heart melted like wax, his tongue sticks to his jaws. God has brought him to the dust of death itself. He died. It's an extraordinary picture of the lingering death of the cross. Then in that, we see this cry for future grace. Again, throughout this psalm, there's like this back and forth between first and second person, I and you. And as we transition from verse 18 to verse 19, we see one of those changes. In verse 19, we return to this sense of hopefulness that was alluded to in verses 3 through 5 and verses 9 through 11. And yet the turn in verses 19 through 21 seems different because now there is no return to pain and anguish. Although the previous hopeful sections focused on what God had done in the past for others and for David, this section is this present cry for help that turns to an answered prayer in verse number 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I would argue that verses 19 through 21 fit really well with what we might call Holy Saturday in our timeline of Holy Week. The day Jesus rests in the tomb. Know that God is not far off. God comes quickly to aid His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how the waves of persistent pain and suffering break on faith that cries out to God in prayer for future grace. It's a prayer that God would intervene and rescue Him. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. Come and deliver me. You see, it is possible, 
even for us, to humbly submit to the sovereignty of God while at the same time asking to be delivered from the trials that he has ordained. It's a hard truth to grasp. If you struggle with that, as I sometimes do, then perhaps we should spend more time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the prayer of our Savior there as he anticipated the cross? If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. So crying for deliverance and yet at the same time submitting to the sovereignty of Almighty God. It's a faith that sustains us in our trials. It's a faith that doesn't hold back from asking to be delivered from our trials. You ever been in one of those seasons of life? I look around the room and I know some of your stories. I I know that for some of you, for many of you, everything hasn't been wonderful. You've been through some dark, dark seasons whether it's been broken relationships or a medical diagnosis, and you've fought your way through those things, and you've clung to God's faithfulness in those moments, in those hours, some of the darkest hours of your life. And yet if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, hopefully you could also at the same time find yourself relying and trusting on a sovereign God who knows what's best. And that he's working all things, ultimately for his glory and for our good. you got to know that Jesus, as he hung up on the cross, knew those things. I want you to notice the hinge now of Psalm chapter 22. It comes down to an answered prayer. If you look at verse number 21... This is really the hinge upon which this whole psalm turns. I said at the outset of the message, this psalm falls into two parts, essentially. The the ESV translation here I I don't think is is great, necessarily. Um, It says, save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then instead of another request for rescue, suddenly David declares instead, not you have rescued me, as it is in the ESV, but literally you have answered me. So it's as though this request for salvation that should have followed the first half of this verse has been interrupted by the the answer itself. Before the prayer is even finished, the answer comes. You've answered me, he says. And so with that, I want to use the remainder of our time together looking at the heights of resurrection victory. Notice from this point on, the tone of the psalm is radically different. Suffering ceases from here on. Here's this one clause in the second half of verse number 21. Death is giving way to resurrection. And so what we find here prophetically is a risen Christ, this response in praise and a reason for our worship. What's especially wonderful about this 22nd Psalm is that it tells us not just what it was like for Jesus on the cross, but how our Savior responds to the fact of the resurrection. What does all this suffering ultimately mean? It tells us how he responds even before it tells how we ought to respond. David writes it this way, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Meanwhile, 
If you go to the, 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 the crucifixion narratives, Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We also see my brothers, that same terminology, come up in a similar resurrection appearance in Matthew chapter 28. And then the author of Hebrews even attributes verse number 22 here to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 12. Verse 23 says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he's, he, he's why we should worship. So the reason for our worship is Jesus Christ has risen. Jesus Christ is alive. The Father heard his cries and delivered him. We are summoned to worship this morning because the tomb is empty. And the throne is occupied. And Jesus lives. Otherwise, I'd have to stand up here this morning and just talk about a dead guy. And where's the hope in that? That's why even as the shadow of death is cast over us and our families, as it, as it often does, and we're mourning and grieving as we often do in a broken, sinful world that, that is marked by death itself, that's why there is hope and there's still grounds for praise. Where, O oh, grave, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Jesus has risen. He has shattered the bonds of death for all who believe so that through our tears and through our grief and our mourning, we can say the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And one day soon, know this, death that has already been defeated will be utterly undone when the Savior who rose returns to take us home. So a, a great congregation will gather in the wake of these great facts. Notice the poor and afflicted there, the rich and the prosperous there. In verse 27, it extends even to all the ends of the world who shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, all people from every class and every background brought into this great congregation through faith in Jesus Christ to praise him because the tomb is empty and Jesus lives. Verses 27 and 28 draw us these resurrection appearances. David writes, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. In that, you hear the echoes in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what is the triumphant message to the nations? It's simply this. It is finished. It's finished. I, I don't know of another way to put it on the bottom shelf for us this morning. It is finished. The work is done. And while all of the other world religions would tell us there's something we have to do or continue to do in order to be reconciled to holy God, the gospel says, no, the work's done. 
Tetelestai, it is finished. He did the work. Notice in verses 30 and 31, we learn how it is that the great congregation will be assembled. I love this. It says, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. In other words, there's a missionary movement will be launched from the cross and the empty tomb that will span the globe and span the years until people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation will assemble around the throne to say, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and glory and might. And we get to be a part of that. What is it exactly that will draw them into worship and bend the knee to the risen Christ? What is the content of the message that gathers the nations and causes them to swell and to triumph? You say, what could possibly do that? We live in such a fractured world today where all we hear about is war and rumors of war and conflict and contention and strife. Even within our own country, we we can't seem to get along. How is this going to happen? What is the content? Notice verse 31. He has done it. (laughs) Don't miss this. As Jesus himself understood those words as he hung up on the cross and cried out, It is finished. The work is done. Our debt has been paid. Our sin has been paid for. Our guilt atoned for. There's nothing else to do but bow in repentance and faith and rise in adoration and praise. Because Jesus died. There's pardon and mercy and cleansing for you and for me. And because Jesus lives, not even death itself can destroy our hope or silence our praise. So what does this psalm really do? I believe it lifts our eyes and focuses them somewhere else entirely not on our deepest losses, as real as they may be. You may be even in one of those seasons right now. Not even on our earthly blessings. No, Psalm 22, it directs our gaze to Jesus, who died and rose and reigns. One of my buddies in our text group this morning said, Give them heaven, brothers. <laughs> Give them heaven. Think about eternity. You see, because he died, our tears find understanding in him. And because he lives, our joy has its deepest roots in him, untouchable by our circumstances. There's forgiveness of sin for you and for me in him because he lives. There's a comfort for sorrow that we experience in him because he lives. There's hope for tomorrow in him because the tomb is empty and he lives. He has done it. Praise the Lord. It's finished. Our Savior has made full payment, full atonement, and now he lives and reigns and is coming back to take us to where he is there we may be also. And so may the Lord fill our vision, our eyes, this Resurrection Sunday with a fresh sight of Jesus himself for the comfort of our hearts and the joy of our souls. And I recognize this morning in a room this size with this this number of people, 
There are people here today who are in all different places in your spiritual journey. There are likely some here today who are just babies in Christ. You've only recently turned in faith to Jesus Christ, trusting him as your Savior and Lord. You're so hungry to learn. I love that. There may be others here who would say, you know, I've kind of grown complacent. My testimony is one of faith in Christ, and I've been on this journey for many, many years. It was in 1974 as an eight-year-old boy that I turned in faith to Jesus Christ. And if I'm completely honest with you this morning, I would have to say, even in the midst of doing ministry for 30-plus years, I sometimes lose sight of the power of the gospel itself. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've lost sight of all that was accomplished for us at Calvary and what the resurrection means to us today here in 2022. Maybe others here today, whether you're watching online or you're here in the room with us, and you would say, there's something missing in my life. I've been searching. I've been, I've been wondering. I've tried a lot of things only to come up empty. See, the only way that you and I can be reconciled to holy God is through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who's already done the work. So you might say, let's get real practical here, Pastor. Is it about me walking an aisle and signing a card to join your church? No. Is it even about me getting baptized next Sunday on Celebration Sunday? No. It's about you recognizing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And there's no way you can possibly, even on your best day, save yourself. That's why Paul writes, it's by grace that you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, if it was up to us, we'd be bragging, wouldn't we? I often say it this way, there ain't going to be any people in heaven walking around going, you know, I pretty much deserve this. No. No. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we would love to share with you in a personal way. Love to sit down and grab a cup of coffee with you and just open God's word and show you how you can be reconciled to holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you would, in these final moments, if we could just bow our heads together. While we don't typically do what many would refer to as an altar call, we always extend an invitation. And that invitation today is very simply this, come to Jesus. It's in Jesus alone that you will find forgiveness for your sin. It's in Jesus alone that you will find hope for the future. It's in Jesus alone that you will find the peace that you so long to experience. You see, you cannot experience the peace of God until you are at peace with God. And the only way that you can be at peace with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. We have several folks here who would love to explain that to you further. Would love to pray with you in your search. 
So Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you for the ultimate sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Your word makes it clear that the Lord Jesus Christ paid a debt that he did not owe. That we owed a debt that we could never pay. And it's in only in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled to holy God. If there's anyone here today who has never taken that simple step of faith, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, by the power of your word today, they be drawn to you. Lord, I thank you that you give us every reason to celebrate on this Resurrection Sunday. That even in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the grief and the sorrow that is so common in this broken, sinful world, we have hope. So we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.